Father, I pray that this morning all of us would do what we just sang, that we would surrender all to you. The very life that we've been talking about, this counterculture life, this different life, this righteous life in a, a corrupt world, it can only be lived out in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we must daily, even moment by moment, surrender and depend upon the Holy Spirit to empower us to live this type of life. And so as usual, Father, we lift this time up to you. Speak through me. Give us understanding of the scriptures. Be glorified this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Take a seat. Get your Bibles out. Turn to Matthew 5, 43-48. We'll get through this entire section this morning. There are no verses up on your screen, so if you want to follow along, you'll need to get your Bibles out. Part of the reason is that if I put the verses up there, I have to do short verses so you can see it. I could not put this entire verse, these like six verses up there, it would be too small. But get your Bibles out anyways. Get your phones out, get your tablets out. Let's dive right in. You have heard that it was said, verse 43 of Matthew 5, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Abraham Lincoln once said this, that the best way to destroy an enemy is to make him your friend. I don't know if you guys remember, about nine years ago, a gentleman by the name of Shane Winmeyer, he's an all-out 48-year-old gay man, a lifelong activist for equality, the founder and executive director of Campus Pride, the leading national organization for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and ally college students. About nine years ago, his organization, and it was in the news, um, advanced a national campaign against Chick-fil-A. We call it Christian chicken. Is that what you call it? Chick-fil-A. Because of the millions, would you say? The Lord's chicken. There we go. Because the millions of dollars Chick-fil-A donated to anti-LGBT organizations and divisive political groups that work each day to harm hardworking LGBT young people, adults, and families. In his own words, this is what he wrote. He says, like most LGBT people, it's funny because this was nine years ago, the Q wasn't on the end of that. Where's the Q? Um, I was provoked by Dan's, meaning Dan... Kathy, who was the, the CEO or owner of Chick-fil-A, the Lord's Chicken or Christian Chicken, by Dan's public opposition to marriage equality and his company's problematic giving history. I had the background and history on him, or so I thought. 
and had my own preconceived notions about who he was. I knew his character. No way did he know me. That was my view. Dan is a problem, and Chick-fil-A is the enemy, right? But my view was flawed. On August 10th, 2012, in the heat of the controversy, I got a surprise call from Dan Cathy. I took the call with great caution. He was going to tear me apart, right? Give me a piece of his mind, turn his lawyers on me. The, call, the first call lasted for over an hour. And the private conversation led to more calls the next week and the week after. His questions and a series of deeper conversations ultimately led to a number of in-person meetings with Dan and his representatives from Chick-fil-A. Throughout the conversations, Dan expressed a sincere interest in my life, wanting to get to know me at a personal level. He wanted to know about where I grew up, my faith, my family, even my husband, Tommy. In return, I learned about his wife and kids and gained an appreciation for his devout belief in Jesus Christ and his commitment to being a follower of Christ more than a Christian. Dan expressed regret and genuine sadness when he heard of people being treated unkindly in the name of Chick-fil-A, but he offered no apologies for his genuine beliefs about marriage. Through his friendship, Campus Pride suspended protesting Chick-fil-A events. And after months of personal phone calls, text messages, and in-person meetings, Shane Windmeyer came out in a new way. As a friend of Chick-fil-A's president and COO, Dan Cathy. It was written, um, updated a few years ago, but written in 2013 by Shane Windmeyer called Dan and Me, My Coming Out as a Friend of Dan Cathy and Chick-fil-A. Now as we continue our study into Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and talk about loving your enemies, that was an appropriate introduction. Last week, we looked at Matthew 5.43. We learned from the Old Testament that we are to obviously love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We are to take no vengeance, Leviticus 19.18. Don't bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And Jesus, remember, combined these two verses from the Old Testament when answering this question asked by the lawyer. One of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question. This is in Matthew 22, 35 and 40. Testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And you said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So, he combined both loving God and loving your neighbor. Okay, We also answered the question last week, who is your neighbor? So we know we need to love our neighbor, but who is your neighbor? In Deuteronomy 22 and in Exodus 23, remember the example in Deuteronomy 22? If your neighbor's ox gets loose, you know, you know your neighbor, his ox gets loose, go retrieve it and return it to him. If you just find an ox running loose, Keep it, take care of it, until the person you don't know comes and retrieves it. And if you find something, the whole finders, keepers, losers, weepers, no, 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 no. If you find something, hold on to it. It's not yours. And then Exodus 23, you're even to help your enemy. If their ox or their livestock is loose, return to them. And so then who is your neighbor according to the Old Testament? It's those you know, 
Those you don't know, your enemies, so basically it's anyone who has a need, so it's pretty much everybody, right? So the Old Testament term for neighbor is a very wide-ranging and inclusive term. It's anyone near who has a need. And that's what we looked at last week. But now we're going to go into the perversion of Jewish teaching. You're at Matthew 5, 43. Watch this. It says this. You have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And if I had it, I put it up here, you can see, but I want you to listen to this. This is Leviticus 19.18. I just read it to you. It says this. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Look at Matthew 5.43. You shall love your neighbor. Leviticus 19.18. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Did you know something? What's missing? The phrase as yourself. You see that? Why did the Jews take that out? Well, they didn't want to keep that standard because it would force them to treat others equal to themselves. And their pride simply wouldn't allow it. So what they do, they lowered the standard by removing the phrase, as yourself. And because of their extreme prejudice, born out of a heart filled with hatred, they added the phrase, hit your enemy. Nor in the Bible does it tell you to hit anybody, other than to hate sin. So now this gives them, by adding hate your enemy, because of that hatred in their heart, it gave them a justification to hate anybody who wasn't a part of their definition of neighbor. And according to the Jews, who was your neighbor was a very, very important question. Do you remember the question the lawyer asked Jesus? So the lawyer, again, stood up and put him to the test saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Remember what Jesus said to him? What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, what question did he ask Jesus? And who is my neighbor? Again, nowhere does the Bible command us to hate our enemies. So where did the Jews get the idea that they are to hate their enemies? I think it was first born out of, and the church struggles with this as well, Israel's call to be holy. What does it, in essence, mean to be holy? It's set apart, right? You're, you're separated. In this case, separate from the world. And eventually, over time, they began to look down or despise on anyone who was not like them. And don't we do this in the church? Everyone's kind of shaking their head. Yes, we do this. So this, this idea of hating your enemy, it was just a logical extension of their perverted thinking. But this is how they defined the term neighbor. And this may be the, the most convicting part of the sermon. First, a Gentile was not a neighbor to a Jew. One of the, of, the, of the maxims or principles of the Pharisees that has been discovered in archaeology 
is it's found in this statement. If a Jew sees a Gentile fallen into the sea, let him by no means lift him out. For it is written, thou shalt not rise up against the blood of thy neighbor, but this man is not thy neighbor. In other words, if you see a Gentile drowning, stand there and enjoy it. Don't save him. Why? He's not your neighbor. Second, if a Gentile is not your neighbor, then logically, who would be your neighbor then? Jews, right? So Jew must be your neighbor. But they even narrowly defined who an acceptable Jew was to be deemed a neighbor. And I can tell you one group of people it wasn't. It certainly wasn't Samaritans. Do you remember the Samaritans? They were descendants of Israelites who had intermarried with pagans after the Assyrians forced most of the Jewish population in Israel's northern kingdom into exile in 722 B.C. And Jewish people considered the Samaritans ethnically and religiously unclean, and the Samaritans likewise resented and despised their Jewish cousins. So they married with the pagans, because that's who was there, and they shouldn't have. So a bitter mutual hostility had divided two people since that time. The hatred was so intense that Jewish travelers would do what? Remember this? Going to Galilee, took the road from the Jerusalem you know, to the east because they wanted to avoid walking in Samaria. Of course, what did Jesus do? Remember the Samaritan woman at the well? He went through Samaria, even talked to a woman. Okay? All taboo things you don't do. Again, the people on the road that were not headed straight north in the direction of Galilee, headed east. It bypassed Samaria. And there was this bitter hatred between Samaritans and Jews, which were partly Jew. So no Gentiles, no Samaritans. Well, third, there's another group of Jews that weren't considered their neighbors. That was tax collectors and sinners. Do you remember the parable of the lost sheep? Do you remember that parable? There's, 90, there's 100 sheep. One is lost. Instead of staying within 99, Jesus goes to find the one that's lost. It says there's much joy in heaven when one sinner repents. But do you remember how the parable begins? This is in Luke 15, verses 1 and 2. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near him, meaning to Jesus, to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. By even interacting with tax collectors and sinners, Jesus was considered ceremonially unclean in the estimation of the scribes and Pharisees. They defined it even further. Fourth, the crowds who did not interpret the law as the Pharisees and scribes did, they were not considered to, to meet their definition of neighbor. Now, for those of us that are introverted, we're like, okay, I kind of like these people. I'm really narrowing down who I have to hang out with. I like that, right? Here's a verse, John 7, 43 to 49. So a division occurred in the crowd because of, of him, meaning Jesus. Some of them wanted to seize him, but... No one laid hands on him, 
The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said to, to them, why did you not bring him? I'm referring to Jesus. The officers answered, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. The Pharisees then answered them, you have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, has he? Now let's watch this. But the crowd which does not know the law is accursed. So this crowd of uneducated people with no commitment to the traditions of the Pharisees that doesn't know the law are cursed. So then, who is your neighbor? Well, according to the Jews, it was not Gentiles, it was not Samaritans, it was not tax collectors or sinners, and it was not the uneducated crowds. They despised those types of people. Well, then who was their neighbors? The people in their group. People who looked like them and thought like them and talked like them and acted like them. I could rephrase that and say there's a little holy huddle that they have, which is the same thing at times that exists in the church. That's who we're kind to. That's who we really think is our neighbor. But even among the religious leadership, there was bitter animosity. The Pharisees and Sadducees and the Herodians, they all disliked each other. The Pharisees were considered to be the legalistic fundamental conservatives. They would be fans probably of Donald Trump if they were alive. They despised the Sadducees because they were the aristocratic liberals who disagreed with the theology of the Pharisees and the resurrection of the dead. Those would be your Democrats. Those would be your supporters of Joe Biden. The Sadducees despised the Pharisees because they viewed them as closed-minded bigots. And the Herodians, who were loyal to Rome, they were considered traitors by both the Pharisees and the Sadducees because they aligned themselves with Rome. But here's the thing, and this is really sick. Only one thing could unite these three groups of people, and that was a mutual hatred towards a common enemy. And who was that enemy? It was Jesus. See, hatred does serve a purpose. It can unite. They set aside their hatred and contempt for one another to conspire to murder the Son of God. <laughs> Even in the sect of Judaism called the Essenes. Remember those? They were the separatists, the Dead Sea Scrolls. You ever remember that? Remember that? This, these people, these Essenes, they separated themselves. They lived in isolation, cut off from the world. And they taught that you were to hate your enemies. It was discovered among their writings, these, among their writings, this, this statement. Love all that God has chosen and hate all that God has rejected. Love all the sons of light, each according to his lot in God's community, and hate all the sons of darkness, each according to his guilt in God's vengeance. And then this statement, the Levites curse all the sons of Belial. The sons of Belial were just people that were non-Essenes. So just like the Pharisees, they cursed everybody who wasn't in their group. 
So their love was prejudiced, exclusive, and ugly. Now, with such an outlook, I'm just describing Jewish people here. It is little wonder that the Romans charged the Jews with hatred of the human race. That's how the Romans viewed the Jews. So the Jews define neighbor in a very narrow, exclusive way. But the Bible, the teaching of the Old Testament, we haven't really gotten to the New Testament, it defines it in a very big way. Very open, very inclusive. And that was the perversion of the Jewish teaching that the people were raised in. Now can you imagine going back to Matthew 5, 43 through 48, Jesus said those words in that culture, in that context. I mean, it was radical. Radical. Let's talk about the perspective of Jesus. If there is one parable that probably sums up Jesus' teaching on loving your neighbor, it would be the parable of what? The Good Samaritan. Remember that story? I'm going to read it to you. And a lawyer, in the love to test Jesus, stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Here's the rest of the passage. Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers. And they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place where he saw him, passed by up on the other side. But a Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him. And when he saw him, he felt compassion and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. and Whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, the one who showed mercy towards him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do the same. Now, what is Jesus saying? Well, first there was a priest, and he ignored the man's need. There was a Levite, who was a helper of the priest. He ignored the man's need. All the religious people, and let me reword that, all of the Christians, people who would think would be inclined to provide for the needs of this man, pass him by. But the unlikeliest of characters, a half-breed Samaritan, stooped and helped the man in need. So who is your neighbor? Anybody in your path is your neighbor, according to Jesus. Let's look at the rest of our text in Matthew 5, 44 and 48, and you're going to find tangible ways that you can love your neighbor, specifically your enemies. Look at verse 44. But I say to you, 
love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise in the evil and the good, and sends rain in the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. What are some tangible things that we can do? What is Jesus saying to us? Well, first thing, number one, is you can love your enemies. He tells us, love our enemies. Well, how do I love my enemy? How do we love our enemies? Well, in this context, and maybe I might clear up a few things for everybody here. What word, you may remember this from last week, what word is used for love here? It's agape. That's God's love towards us. You typically may remember agape love as unconditional love. Okay? It seeks the welfare or the, the best of, of the recipient of that love. Now, that love, it does not mean that we are to love our enemies with a different kind of love. For example, a filial love. What city is a city of brotherly love? Philadelphia, that's filial. It's brotherly love, an affectionate love as you would love a brother. It's not, and Jesus is not saying you are to love your enemies like that type of love, okay? In fact, we might even like our enemy as we would like or love our brother. But we still seek their best interests. Did Jesus like the Pharisees? He didn't like them in terms of he, he, he had affection for them. He didn't spend time with them. He carefully guarded himself against them. But he definitely loved them and looked out for their best interests. He continually reached out to them, but he never entrusted himself to them. In fact, he never entrusted himself to any man. They often angered him, but he loved them. And how did he love them? By dying on the cross for their sins. See, his heart of love was revealed in his words while hanging on the cross. Remember what he said? Because who was persecuting him while he was on the cross? It was those very Pharisees. Father, what? Forgive them, for they know not what they do. That, while you're being insulted, while you're being beaten, while you're being, being dying, love has no conditions. You are to still love your enemy. And Jesus demonstrates that. That's agape love. But perhaps maybe the best way for us to remember what agape love looks like was written by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7. Love is what? Patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. What does love do? It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It goes on to say that love never fails. That's agape love. That's how you love 
your enemies. Number two, how do we love our enemies? Well, we pray for our persecutors. Now this is so against the grain, so countercultural, so against human nature. And the temptation that we must resist when praying for our enemies is found in Luke. In fact, turn to Luke 9. This is actually it's kind of funny. Because this is so human. And as a joke, you'll get this. I kind of feel this way every time I get behind uh, a slow driver. All right? Luke 9, 51 to 54. Are you there? You'll laugh at this because you, some of you feel the same way as I do. It says, when the days were approaching for his ascension, and he was determined to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. Now remember, the Jews and Samaritans were not too close. But they did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. When his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? <laughs> I have to admit, that thought has crossed my mind occasionally when I'm behind a slow driver. Just, foomsh, be all gone. No, I can go. I don't have road rage, right? But that's a temptation that we feel towards our enemies, to those that are persecuting us. We want vengeance. Well, what do I ask God when I pray for those who are persecuting me? I mean, how do I pray for my persecutors? Well, I think you need to let the love of God be your guide, because there's no better prayer for your enemy than to pray for their what? Their salvation. Remember 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. But what about somebody that is persecuting you, that's being mean to you, that is within the family of faith? It happens. We need to remember that God loves our enemies. We are to seek their best interests when we pray for their salvation. And Christians do a great job of acting like lions and attacking one another. But one of the things that we can do is found in Romans 12, 14. It says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. So just pray for God's richest blessings upon this person, whoever it is, whether a believer or unbeliever. Pray that God's blessings would be lavishly poured out upon them in the ways that God sees fit, for he knows their life circumstances. And if you pray that way, your heart will change. Your desires, your affections your emotions will change. God will honor that. Number three, so we love our enemies, pray for our persecutors, and we demonstrate your sonship. One of the uh, greatest truths in Scripture is found in Ephesians 1. It says that in love, he, meaning God the Father, predestined us to adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. So out of love, God predestined you and adopted you 
as a son or daughter to himself. He's a father, you are now his children. And this was done in eternity past. Now, everyone turn to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew 27, verses 45 and 46. I want you to, as you're going to just listen, to be a son or daughter of God is a great privilege. But that privilege comes with a price. It cost God an awful lot to make us his sons and daughters. And I want to briefly show you what it cost God to call us his sons and daughters. Matthew 27, 45, and 46. Jesus is hanging on the cross. It says, Now from the sixth hour darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Ela ili lama sabachthani, that is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now the sixth hour from the ninth hour is from noon to three. And I have a question for you. Have you ever wondered why it got dark in the middle of the day? I mean, it's noon. It's, it's what, 45 minutes, it'll be noon in an overcast day. Imagine a bright sunny day, noon to three. That is the height of the brightness of the sun, right? Why did it get dark in the middle of the day? Well, the answer to that question reveals the price God paid for us to be his children. During that time of noon to three, of darkness, while Jesus was hanging on the cross, God's fury was being poured out on Jesus as he bore in his body all the sins of all men in the judgment of God. I don't like being uncomfortable for a minute. He took all that judgment over a three-hour period. Jesus was feeling the intense spiritual pain of God's furious anger, his wrath over sin poured out totally on him, a completely innocent person. It was as if God accumulated all of his wrath against all the sins of all the ages, past, present, and future, and poured it out all in Christ. But there was another price God paid as well. For six long hours, Jesus had been enduring immeasurable physical agony. And to be honest with you, it's hard to conceive the pain of having nails hammered through your wrists and hammered through your feet. And then to be in that position for six hours while you are slumped in a position that suffocates your internal organs. Your muscles are cramped and you're unable to move. There's also thorns that are crushed into your brow and blood runs down your face. There's a, a cloak of flies that are just all around you. You can't scratch or move in any direction at all except to perhaps slightly reposition your anatomy 
because every one of your extremities is suspended by a nail. Hour upon hour of excruciating physical agony to say nothing of the nakedness, the approach of mockery, sarcasm, hatred, venom being poured out upon him. But as that sin-bearing judgment comes to a climax, what does Jesus do? He gathers his strength enough to cry out from his heart, my God, my God, what? Why have you forsaken me? And this reveals a third price God paid. You see, when Jesus became a man, God incarnate, he agreed to a, think of it as a diminished level or reduced level of fellowship with his father. Whereas he had always been by the father's side, now he was living in a human flesh. And on the cross, he ceased to have any fellowship with his father. So in the incarnation, there was some degree of separation of fellowship. And now in his sin-bearing death, there's another degree of separation. I mean, you know what it's like to love somebody and then to spend some time away from them. I mean, you're really in love. It hurts, right? You miss them. You feel lonely. So what price did God pay to call us his sons and daughters? A spiritual price? A physical price and a relational price. So when God gives you, and I want you to hear me on this, the opportunity to prove that you are his son or daughter by loving your enemy, by the way, it's something God does every day because he sends sun and rain on who? The righteous and the unrighteous. I'm telling you, prove your sonship. Make the most of that opportunity. Remember the cost. Number four, surpass your fellow men. Uh, Coach Herb Brooks was not satisfied with the effort on the ice from his young hockey team after an exhibition game leading up to the 1980 Winter Olympic Games. Herb Brooks, of course, was the coach of the U.S. men's hockey team that beat the Russians in 1980, the miracle. So in order to motivate his team, he had them do what I call suicides. They would go one quarter of the ice down and back, halfway down and back, three quarters of the way down and back, and then the full length and back. And they did this for hours after an exhibition game. The players were exhausted and dangerously close to getting injured just from fatigue. And he yelled at his players, this cannot be a team of common men because common men go nowhere. You have to be uncommon. That's exactly what Jesus is saying in verses 46 and 47. Look at that. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Everyone does that. Do you know even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? So the Gentiles and the tax collectors, the lowest scum of society, do this. And you do this. That's common. What's uncommon? Ah, loving your enemies. They don't do that. 
I do that, and I expect my children to do that. So don't think or speak or act like the common man. You must be uncommon. There are only so many opportunities to show the world you are uncommon. And when you're given these rare opportunities, define the moment. Don't let the moment define you. Resist acting like everyone else. Now some of you may be thinking, Pastor Chris, why do you keep using the word opportunity when talking about loving your enemies? Well, why? Because they are opportunities to, for you to build up rewards in heaven. How many opportunities do you have to love your enemy? How many opportunities does enemy come and seek and to hurt you? It doesn't happen that often, though it does, but it doesn't happen that often in America. But when it does happen, how do you respond? For some of us, and this is, this is all of us really, we can get offended and we will unfriend somebody on Facebook or we will stop talking to them. Well, you look like a child in the eyes of God, an infant that has never grown up when you do that. It's petty, right? And we all do that. I'm saying that, and that's probably with, by a friend who's doing that to you. But if an enemy is coming after you, I mean, those are rare opportunities. It's an opportunity for you to get rich in heaven. Seize that moment. Don't act like the common man. You must be uncommon. It's like my wife often says, honey, I married you so I can be one of the richest people in heaven. It's just put up a lot being married to me. Number five, be perfect. It says, therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, what, what does the word therefore, therefore? That takes you back to what was just previously said. The four points of what? Love your enemies, pray for your persecutors, demonstrate your sonship, and surpass your fellow men. All this leads to this fifth and final point, to be perfect. Well, how perfect? What does he mean by that? Well, you're as perfect as your Father in heaven. What does that mean? It simply means to be like God. Your heavenly Father loves his enemies and demonstrates his love for them each day by the sun and the rain. Do the same. And by doing the same, you're acting like your father who's perfect. In that regard, you are perfect. And let me just rephrase this whole section here of Matthew 5, 43-48 for you with these words. As a Christian, you don't have enemies. I mean, there are no enemies. Everyone is your neighbor, and therefore everyone is your friend. And therefore everyone, you are to do good to them to seek their best interests. Now I opened this sermon with a quote from Abraham Lincoln. The best way to destroy an enemy is to make him your friend. And I want to close with this illustration about loving your enemy from the very life of Abraham Lincoln. And perhaps no other city in the American present had so many enemies as Abraham Lincoln. And of course, one of his enemies would eventually take his life. But it wouldn't be Edwin M. Stanton. Lincoln, an Illinois lawyer, met Stanton, a high-powered Washington, D.C. lawyer, and future attorney general when the D.C.-based lawyer invited Lincoln 
to join him in the infamous McCormick Reaper case said to be tried in Chicago. Now, never having served in such a prestigious position, Lincoln accepted the position and worked tirelessly preparing document after document, conducting research for the legal team. But Lincoln didn't know that Stanton was only using Lincoln to make himself look good in the eyes of the Illinois judge who would try the case. In fact, not only did Stanton not have any use for Lincoln's work, he would not even associate with the man he would call a low cunning clown and a giraffe. Remember, Lincoln was tall. Stanton's favorite nickname for Lincoln was the original gorilla. He said that men were foolish to wander around Africa trying to capture a gorilla when they could find one in Springfield, Illinois. Lincoln eventually got the message and receded from the legal team, but that was 1855. Five short years later, in 1860, that same giraffe-like Abraham Lincoln was the President of the United States. But Lincoln's political savvy did nothing to assuage Stanton of his low opinion of Lincoln. In personal letters to friends and even Union General George McClellan, Stanton said the President had no token of intelligent understanding. There was no love lost between the two men. But lost love didn't concern the president. He was focused on not losing the war. The Civil War was going badly for the Union, and the War Department, based just up the street from the White House, was in absolute disarray. Logistics were sloppy. Supplies were always short and late, and updates from battlefields were often sketchy. Advisors to the president recommended he appoint the man best suited for the job of Secretary of the War Department, Edwin M. Stanton. So Lincoln swallowed his pride, and he did just that. And what could have been Lincoln's biggest blunder of the Civil War, appointing a known enemy to such an important post, turned out to be one of Lincoln's best decisions. When Stanton joined the cabinet, Lincoln trusted him implicitly. Lincoln spent more time with his secretary of the War Department, than he did with any other cabinet member. Almost every day, Lincoln walked down the street to get updates from Stanton on particular fronts. Sometimes, during critical battles, Lincoln made the trek three or four times a day. In fact, it wasn't unheard of the president to spend the night in the telegraph office of the War Department waiting on updates from the field. The trust Lincoln had for Stanton was well-deserved. Oftentimes, Lincoln would not even read over military commissions that required his signature if he spotted Stanton's name on the ledger. Stanton's approval was good enough for Lincoln. And Lincoln's trust of Stanton began to change the two men's relationship. Stanton responded with unfailing loyalty. Disparaging words of Lincoln not only disappeared from Stanton's lips, but neither he nor any of his family members would tolerate a scornful remark of their beloved president. When enmity once was, a friendship blossomed. On the evening of April 9, 1865, upon Lincoln's return to Washington aboard the River Queen, it was Stanton who greeted him with a bear hug and informed Lincoln of Lee's surrendered Appomattox. Five days later, on the morning of April 14, 1865, Abraham Lincoln died from the gunshot wound inflicted on him the night before while taking a show at Ford's Theater. 
Now the famous words were spoken upon Lincoln's death, now he belongs to the ages, are attributed to a teary-eyed Stanton. Robert Todd Lincoln, the assassinated president's son, wrote that Stanton, for more than 10 days after my father's death in Washington, called every morning on me in my room and spent the first few minutes of his visits weeping without saying a word. Because Abraham Lincoln was willing to forgive and trust an enemy, he gained a friend, indeed a very dear friend. So you love your enemies. That's counterculture. So what I want you to do, more than anything else, we, we talked about this a little more in depth in the Bible study on Wednesday night, which is the hint, hint if you're not coming to that, I hope you feel extreme guilt, that you can barely walk out of here because you're feeling convicted because you're not coming to the Zoom Bible studies. So you need to be coming to it. That being said, we talked about how more than anything else, this is to love your enemies, it's, it starts here. You have to change the way you think. Because your first reaction, which is almost always an emotional reaction, is to lash out. And the only way that is controlled and restrained is if you know in your mind that you're not to do that and you're to do the opposite. You are to love. And so... To help with that, memorize this passage, these six verses. Put it in you. Keep it before you. Because you will be offended in this world. Jesus promised that. And then when those offenses happen, when someone is mean to you, when you have an enemy, you will see it as an opportunity to prove your sonship, instead of an opportunity to lash out or to hurt them or to get even. And to be honest with you, it feels really good to get even. And it doesn't feel good to love your enemy. But I can tell you when I've chosen this path and loved instead of lashed out, Boy, the peace that comes later and the satisfaction that you have and the softened heart toward your enemy, you know, hate is useless. It just eats you alive. And you can't put a price on that. And so memorize that. Put it in your mind. Keep it in front of you. Because that's how a subject of his kingdom lives. Let's pr pray and we'll close with a song this morning. Why don't you stand with me too as we pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your words to us this morning. It is hard words, but it, are good, it is good words. I thank you for the truth that you have shown us this morning. May you be glorified. May you be lifted up. May you be exalted. And may we love as you love. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.